0: Good morning, our reading this morning is from Judges chapter 3, verses 12 to 30, and you can find it on page 240 in your church Bibles, Judges chapter 3, verses 12 to 30. This is an extraordinary story of God's judgment over Israel, both negatively and positively, through a man called Ehud. It has also extraordinary details. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Jerah, the Benjaminite. The Israelites, of, the Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehad had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us, and they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from you, for, from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he'd gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Zira. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered. For the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was subjected to, made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years.
1: I know what you're thinking. (laughs) That story's in the Bible. Are you serious? (laughs) G'day, my name's Nathan. And uh, if you couldn't tell, um, I'm the youth minister here at St. Matt's, um, and I chose that passage. (laughs) Um, I enjoy watching movies, and I know that's about the most generic thing someone can say about themselves, right? Because who doesn't love a good movie? But over the years, I've enjoyed collecting movies and, and, and creating a bit of a collection at home, and I will admit that they are in alphabetical order, and I reckon that's probably a throwback from when I used to work in a video store, if you can remember what those things were. Now, if you were to come past some time and browse the shelves, not only would you be able to conclude that I've got great taste in movies, but you'd also notice that I am a fan of superhero films. Now, I know some of you will be sitting there going great taste. Superhero films, really? Not sure they go together. Scott, for instance, when I told him we were talking about superheroes today, just kind of rolled his eyes. I was like, okay, boomer. (laughs) It's alright. I know superheroes are not everyone's cup of tea, but it is hard to argue, I think, with their popularity at the moment in particular. So back in April this year, the worldwide box office record that had stood for 10 years was finally broken when Avatar sorry not Avatar when Avengers Endgame came out. And it made over a billion dollars in just 5 days, its first 5 days of release, a billion dollars. And it would go on to make 2.7 billion dollars. One movie, $2.7 billion. It's staggering. And if you combine the box office takings of every Marvel and DC film, put them all together, you would have more than $27 billion. And that's just from ticket sales. So that's not even accounting for the merchandise. I can't imagine what that would amount to if you put all that together. It's crazy. So, you know, you might not be into superhero movies, and that's cool. But there are lots of us who are. That's all I'm trying to say. Scott. Today marks the second part in our Advent series. Those of you who were with us last week saw that we're taking a look at Jesus' backstory. That's what we're doing. The figures, the types, the, the, the kinds of shoes that Jesus was expected to fill from the Old Testament. So, the prophet, the priest, the king. And how with every single one of them, Jesus turns out actually to be greater than all those who came before. Today, we're looking at Jesus, the greater judge. Now, look, you're probably like me, and you hear the word judge, you think of the wig, the flowing cloak, and the hammer, right? And I think that's understandable. And you know what? You're not too far off. It's just that when it comes to judges in the Old Testament, the wig, the cloak, the hammer... It's a little bit more like this, guys, which is to say, if there were any biblical figures you could equate with modern-day superheroes, it would be the Old Testament judges, the judges, because you see, they were Israel's warrior generals. They were raised up by God, empowered by His Spirit in extraordinary ways, and they were sent on a mission to bring deliverance for God's people, Israel. These judges arrive on the scene during what is a very dark, very chaotic time in Israel's history. You see, they'd gone and done the slavery in Egypt thing, so God sent Moses to set them free. And then they did the whole 40 years traipsing through the desert thing. And so God went and sent Joshua to lead them into the long-awaited promised land. And it was a great place to be. It was a place of plenty, a place of protection, a place of peace. That is, until they went and messed it all up. And unfortunately, that happened almost immediately. Nice one. So what happened? Israel forgot about God. That's what happened. They chose to intermarry with the very nations God had commanded them to drive out And because of that, Israel ended up worshipping the gods of these other nations. They turned away from the Lord and eventually, by turning away from the Lord, the Lord actually turned away from Israel and he removed his favour. He removed his protection from them, allowing Israel's neighbours to become their oppressors. So they actually became slaves again, this time in their own land. Can you imagine that? out of one prison and into the next. And it was entirely Israel's fault because they had chosen to forsake the one who had been protecting and providing for them all along. Look, it wasn't the smartest move. Let's put it like that. And it's out of this mess, from out of this mess, right, this low, dark moment in Israel's history that the book of Judges comes about. And if you've ever read through the book of Judges, you'll know that it is very repetitive. Each episode we get follows a pattern whereby Israel sins and they turn away from God. And so they end up getting overrun and oppressed by the enemies. Israel eventually cries out for help from God, save us. And in God's mercy, he then raises up a spirit-empowered warrior, a judge, through whom God then brings salvation to Israel. Then rest and peace reign. Until the time of the judge's death, at which point Israel turns away from God and the whole thing just kind of kicks off all over again and around and around and around and around and around it goes. That is the book of Judges. And it reveals two really important things. You kind of get the point once you get to the end. The first is that it it reveals the despair of trying to live life without the life giver. It just doesn't work. And secondly, it also exposes humanity's desperate need for deliverance. Deliverance from our enemies, but maybe even... Deliverance from ourselves. The question is, how does Jesus fit into that picture? Well, there are 12 judges that are mentioned across the book. Some just get a verse or two. Others get a bit of a longer account. But there are echoes of Jesus through each one of them. For instance, you've got Othniel, the first judge. His name means... Lion of God. And Othniel, as it turns out, is also from the tribe of Judah, which makes him literally God's Lion of Judah. Sound familiar? Well, then there's Shamgar. I like Shamgar. He only gets one verse, but it packs a punch, because in this one verse, we're told that Shamgar manages to face off against impossible odds, 600 enemy soldiers, and he single-handedly defeats them all, not with any conventional weapon, but with, with something that amounted to a little more than a plank of wood. Sound familiar? Well, then there's Jephthath. Jephthath. Isn't that a great name? Jephthah. Too bad I'm not having any more kids. Jephthath. Jephthath gets re- rejected by his own people, and so he goes off and he gathers to himself a bunch of misfits. And they roam the countryside with him. Sound familiar? Well, then there's the most famous of them all, Samson the Strong. And before he's even born, his folks get visited by an angel who tells them to expect a baby even though it's physically impossible for them. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Each judge, in their own way, points beyond themselves to a greater deliverer. Ultimately, they point to Jesus... To God come down in the flesh who would be the greatest judge and whose triumph over the enemy would secure lasting deliverance. Not just for Israel, but for the whole world. Now, before we come to this greater judge, I want us to take a a, a closer look at one of the judges in particular, the the one from the passage we read, Ehud, who we're told was the left-handed man. (laughs) Interesting way to describe him, which probably also meant that he was goofy-footed just for the record, not sure how much swell there would have been in ancient Mesopotamia. And hopefully you were just at least a little intrigued by Ehud's story as we read through it before. It is a cracking tale. I hope you still got it there in front of you, page 240 if you've lost it. I'm going to work through it for a little bit. And i to be honest with you, this has got to be one of the most thrilling, one of the most graphic stories in scripture. And at the very center of it is left-handed Ehud our daring and courageous hero. It is totally the kind of story that would not be out of place in a superhero movie. Notice there in verse 12. It starts off in the familiar pattern of all the judges. Israel rebels against the Lord, and so God gives them over to their enemies, to Eglon, king of Moab, who rules over Israel with an iron fist, we're told, for 18 years. Verse 15, following the pattern, Israel cries out, and what does God do? He raises up left-handed Ehud in order to deliver them. Now, you might be asking at this point, what is with this left-handed thing? You know, what's going on? Why does the story keep mentioning it? Well, that is actually part of the story, and all will become clear by the end, so hang in there. Ehud's mission starts off with something that at least from the outside, would have just looked totally ordinary. Israel sends tribute to Moab, so gold and food and rare treasure. And it would have been something that Israel would have done regularly as a way for them to kind of display their submission to this foreign ruler. But the tribute offering on this day was different and it was different because God's anointed was the one leading the procession. So this humiliating act for Israel actually becomes the means by which Ehud is able to bring salvation to the nation. Because the tribute gets him access to the palace and then his mention of a secret message gets him time alone with the king. And then we come to what's got to be the most superhero moment of the whole story. Ehud delivers his witty pun. Eglon, God's got a message for you. Why don't you take a guess what it might be? I'll give you a hint. It starts with double-edged, ends with sword. Ehud's blow falls, and with it, so does Eglon and his empire and it's really only at this point, right at the end, that we get to see the significance of Ehud having been left-handed. You see, the guards, assuming that he fought with his right hand, would have only checked his left side where you would keep your sword if you were right-handed. Instead, of course, because he's left-handed, he's got his sword on his right-hand side, which wasn't checked. And he's able to conceal it from the guards, Which means Ehud's blow against Eglon literally came out of left field. It was so unexpected it caught Eglon and the empire of Moab completely by the surprise. Ehud then makes his escape, returns to Israel, sounds that trumpet call and delivers those triumphant words to the nation. Verse 28, he says, follow me. For the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. The assassin dealt the first deadly blow, which began what became complete and utter victory for God's people that day. It's incredible. They'd been slaves of Moab for 18 years, but in God's mercy and through the heroics of this appointed saviour, Israel then enjoys 80 years of rest and peace. It's a remarkable story. Ehud gets the heroic exit, escaping out of the palace. But one of the things I love about superhero movies is actually the heroic entrance. You know what I mean by that, right? The heroic entrance. It's that at that point in the story when evil is prevailing and the tide is turning against the good guys. The bad guys are gaining the upper hand. All hope seems lost and then, Captain America arrives. I've got a clip. I'm not sure the sound's going to work properly. We'll just see how we go. It's not working at all. Oh sort of. No. That's terrible. You can watch the clip. It's not as good without the music, though. The bad guys turn up. They're looking all evil, haven't brushed their teeth. And the good guys, right, they're they're about to cop it. They're really down. She's got glowing hands for some reason. And then they notice something in the background. You know who that is, right? Right? Captain America. And the music's like ba-bum, bum, ba bum bum and it's like, yes, he's here, right? It's great when the music works, it's great, right? Everything stops, the music changes, and I love in particular the, the the shots of their faces, the relief when they notice, when they realize that the hero has arrived. And it makes me think of that moment when Jesus announced his arrival in in terms that paint him as the greater judge. It comes partway through Luke chapter 4. Jesus has been baptised, he's been tempted in the desert, and then his ministry really kicks off. He rolls into his hometown of Nazareth, into the synagogue one Sabbath, and they ask him to read from the Scriptures. Very intentionally he decides to read from Isaiah 61, which says this, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What a picture that is of Jesus' Spirit-empowered mission. You notice some of those lines as well. Freedom for the prisoners. He's been appointed to set the oppressed free. Free. Sound familiar? The best bit, in my opinion, though, is what happens immediately after he's read the scriptures in the synagogue that day. We're told that he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Who is this guy? What has he just read? And he begins by saying to them this. And I imagine the music kind of starts. Bada bum, bada bum, bada 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 bum, bum. It's like today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's a drop the mic moment, right? Like Captain America stepping out of the shadows. Isaiah's ancient words of prophecy still ringing in their ears. Jesus says, That is me. Today is the day of salvation. This is the year of the Lord's favor. The heroic entrance. And you see, at that point in Israel's history, they were once again subject to a foreign nation, to Rome. They were prisoners in their own land again, just like they'd been so many hundreds of years before to Eglon, king of Moab. And so in Jesus' day, they were once again longing for deliverance and redemption and salvation. Some people expected that Jesus would bring a sword with him just like the judges of old. Some people wanted him to lead a violent uprising against Rome and expel them from Israel. But what they all failed to understand was that the battle Jesus had come to wage was far greater, and the victory he was planning to deliver far grander than anyone could ever imagine. And he would do it in the most unexpected way possible. You see, similar to Ehud, Jesus led the prophetic. The procession through the streets of Jerusalem, bearing his own cross, offering his own body up as tribute. He was delivering himself not to any earthly king, but to the ruler of the air, to Satan, the greater enemy. And you can only speculate, but surely Satan must have been there that day, feeling pretty chuffed with himself, right? Watching on as God's only beloved son went to be crucified like a criminal. And yet, even as he began to celebrate his victory, as the nails were driven into Jesus' hands, and as the Son of God's dying gasps rang out, like Eglon, the great enemy, must have heard a whisper in his ear, I have a message from God for you. It is finished. It is finished. A deadly strike Coming completely out of left field. Jesus, the greater judge, lands this most unexpected blow against the supreme foe. And in that moment, with the sacrifice of his own life, Jesus strikes death down. Just like the king of Moab, in that moment on that hill outside Jerusalem, the ruler of the air was run through. Not with a blade, but with a cross. Charles Spurgeon, famous 19th century preacher, had a great way of putting this moment. He said this, I love this, Our Redeemer's glorious cry of, It is finished, was the death knell of all the adversaries of his people. Behold, the hero of Golgotha, using his cross as an anvil and his woes as a hammer, dashing to splinters, bundle after bundle of our sins, trampling every indictment, destroying every accusation. What, a, what glorious blows the mighty breaker gives with a hammer far more ponderous than the fabled weapon of Thor. Thor. Spurgeon was a superhero fan. <laughs> I like him even more now. With Jesus landing that fatal blow, he brought death's reign to an end and he cleared the way between us and life by clearing the way between us and God. So sin no longer needs to stand as this chasm between you and God because the greater judge has actually secured for you and he secured for me the offer of complete forgiveness and the promise of everlasting life. I wonder... Have you been delivered by Jesus, the greater judge? You know, one of the things that fascinates me about superhero movies is just how popular they've become in the last two decades or so and really what that might be saying about us as a society. That's interesting, I think. Jerry Robinson, Uh, he was responsible for creating the Joker, probably the most iconic villain in comic book history, he said something interesting about this recent rise in popularity of superheroes. He said this, I think heroes are back. I think you can almost chart it. The times are not so good. We're looking for heroes. Turns out someone did chart it. And in the 35 years between 1966 and 2001, there were a total of 19 superhero movies. 35 years, 19 superhero movies. And yet, in the 17 years since 2001, so since 2002 to today, there have been 71 films, 71 superhero films in just 17 years. You know, this year alone, we've had eight superhero movies released. So this is not something that's slowing down. That's staggering when you compare the two. The times are not so good. We're looking for heroes, says Jerry Robinson. I reckon he's right. And you know, if you, if you were to draw a line dividing the time between before superheroes kind of exploded in popularity and the time we're living in now where they're definitely popular, I wonder if it's just a coincidence or if there's something to the fact that that line is drawn in 2001, the year the September 11 attacks occurred. Interesting. The day they say the Western world was changed forever. And I mean, it does make sense, doesn't it? Because the more insecure, the more unsafe we feel, the greater our appetite for salvation fantasies. And that's what I think superhero movies are in a way, right? Salvation fantasies. The morally good heroes choosing to use their extraordinary powers to help the oppressed, and the powerless to deliver the world from unspeakable evil and always, by the end, to have triumphed over that evil. They always end the same way. It's cathartic, surely, even if it's just at a subconscious level. You know, There's something about salvation stories that are reassuring. The truth is, whatever it is you want to say about movies, I mean, we all feel troubled by what we see around us, don't we? It's hard not to be. No one enjoys feelings of worry or of being unsafe or that unknown about whether everything is going to turn out all right in the end. In those moments or in those seasons of life when anxiety is rising, when that sense of insecurity is growing, who or what do you turn to in Ehud's day, you know, Israel were quick to turn to the gods of their neighbors. They looked beyond the borders, beyond the borders of their own nation for reassurance, to fertility gods, to gods that govern the harvest or the weather or warfare, each one of them holding out to them a promise of greater security, greater safety, greater success. And when times got tough, why not? Why not try them out, you know? What's the harm? Hedge your bets. Cover your bases. And so time and time again, you know, God's people would turn to Baal, to Ashtoreth, to Molech, to Chemosh, not because, that they, were, not because they were idiots or they were dumb, but because they were scared. They were, they were frightened and terrified and worried about their future and desperately hoping for deliverance and looking for something that would provide comfort and reassurance. You know, I think it's easy for us to, to look back at Israel in the Old Testament and just ridicule how flippantly they, they turned and worshipped idols. But if I'm honest, how different from them am I really? You know, because the idols might be different, but I know that temptation when, when, when I'm going through my own times of insecurity and worry and fear, that temptation to look around And to notice the idols that our neighbors are looking to for their salvation. It's easy. Maybe without even realizing it. You know, none of your neighbors are looking to Baal for their security, but they're looking to ING, to the bank balance they've accumulated. They're looking to the property that they were savvy enough to purchase at the right time. They're looking to the reputation that they've been building with their friends and colleagues. They're looking to the accolades they've received over the years, to the family they've been raising, or to the body shape and size that they've had the discipline to maintain. How easy, how tempting is it for us to place our hope in similar things, And it's easy because that's what everyone else is doing around us. And if I'm not careful, it's in those times when I'm feeling the most unsafe, when my future is looking the most insecure, it's in those times when the temptation to go after those things is at its strongest. The reality is, though, of course, that neither Baal nor a healthy bank balance has ever had the power to deliver anyone. Those idols make all sorts of hollow promises to our hearts, but they will never be able to make us truly safe. Not the kind of safety that actually matters. Not the kind of safety that we actually need. The only one who can deliver on that promise is the one who defeated the ultimate foe. Only Jesus, the greater judge, has that power. And if he is your deliverer, if you're willing to entrust yourself to his salvation, then you know what? You are safe. You are safe. Ultimately safe. Eternally safe. Safe in all the ways that matter the most. Do you know that? Do you know that you're safe? Do you truly believe it? Deep down in your bones, do you believe it? Because we really need to remember it. (laughs) We need to stop taking it so lightly. We need to start drawing our confidence from it, our comfort from it, especially, especially in those times when we're most gripped by our fears and our worries and our insecurities, because truly, truly, there is no safer place to be than with the one who has conquered death. Have you been delivered by the greater judge? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word with obscure stories like Ehud's that we may never have read or pondered before and yet that speak so loudly of your son's ultimate deliverance of the whole world through his victory over Satan and sin and death. Father, we pray that these words this morning from your word may encourage us and comfort us, may pull our attention from those idols that we're surrounded by, that we may fix our eyes on you, our great deliverer, that we may place our hope and our trust in the salvation you have won for us in your son that he may be indeed our great Deliverer. Amen.